Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tāmaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Mary Norris's New York Times bestseller, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, gives an account of the author's years in the New Yorker's copy department. She's followed it up with Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen, a witty romp around language, love and the crystalline Greek coast along which she adventured. Norris speaks with Adam Dudding in a session supported by Platinum Bowl patrons Josephine and Ross Green. We hope you enjoy it. So let's get that out of, out of the way. Can you can you etymologise the word etymology for me, perhaps? Wow, the true meaning. I, it's the meaning of the true roots. The true meaning of... Ooh. There you go. <laughs> etymology, not to be confused with entomology. And etymon is the true meaning of the root of the word, and ology is study of, entomology is the study of insects. Which is at least as interesting, but not today's thing. Would have been an alternative career, I guess. Anyway, uh, you possibly all know that there's a comma-related thing happening tomorrow um, with Mary, so we're not really doing a lot of commas today, we're mostly being Greek. So, uh, book's called Greek to me, the phrase is from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, I think. Is that right? Suggesting something that's incomprehensible. But you turn that definition on its head with a lovely line near the start where you write, there is a spell I sometimes fall under in which the whole world looks Greek to me. So, the obvious question, why Greece? Why are you so obsessed? Um, Well, I was first inspired to go to Greece by seeing the landscape in the background of the movie Time Bandits. There's a cameo. There's a cameo with Sean Connery as Agamemnon, and he's dueling with a minotaur. And the background of this scene, set in ancient Greece, looked so beautiful to me, was um, just earth and sky with a soft but distinct horizon, nothing growing, no grass. And I fell in love with that that landscape. It turned out later, I found out that the movie was shot in Morocco, but never mind, (laughs) never mind about that. That's when I decided to go to Greece because that my response to art is always naive. You know, I see a painting by Van Gogh of wheat fields and I think, oh, I'd like to go there. Um, I don't study the strokes or any of that. I just want to be in the place. So I started studying Greek in order to travel in Greece. I think it's only polite to have a little bit of the language in the places that you're going to. And now I say that, and I have no Maori. So sorry, I'll learn some, I promise, before I go. And, and it just kind of snowballed. I traveled to Greece, I learned, I decided to learn ancient Greek. And what it is there, I think, what draws me always back to Greece is the beautiful way, uh, the beautiful, communication between the earthly and the divine. The temples are set perfectly in a landscape that enhances the temples and the temples enhance the landscape. And it's not just temples, but everywhere you go. And the sea, of course, has great fascination for me for many reasons. I like looking at it, I like traveling on it, and I like swimming in it. And you didn't see it until you were about 18 or something, apparently. I, I saw, I grew up on the shores of Ohio, Lake Erie. And um, I heard somebody. <laughs> 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 and this was in the 50s and 60s, so this lake was very polluted 
We used to go swimming off of a beach called Edgewater Beach in Lake Erie, and there was one time we went and there were all little dead fish floating on the surface, but we were so used to this kind of thing that we just tried to find a spot with fewer dead fish floating in it <laughs> to swim in. Then I went east to go to college in New Jersey, and when I told somebody in my dormitory, my friend um, Clancy, who's traveling with me now, I told her I'd never seen the ocean. She went, what? I mean, she was b born and bred in New Jersey, and they go to the shore. They, everybody in New Jersey knows about the shore, Asbury Park, you know. Um, so she borrowed a car and took me right to Asbury Park, and I got to see the ocean for the first time. I was 18, and I was really struck, you know, in Cleveland, the way you knew your way around was that the lake was always north. And I was very proud of myself for knowing instinctively as I walked along the boardwalk in New Jersey that this water was east. And it reoriented me to the whole continent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in Auckland because you look both ways, as I said. But anyway, um, so well. I, I was really interested in that period where you were boning up on Greek, Greece and Greek before going there for the very first time. There's this guy Ed Stringham at the New York, the mm. New Yorker, who's, who pulls out all these books and maps and and starts showing you that you know it's possible to read this other script and all all that stuff. Um, but what interested me about that is that it was only after I think a full year of this obsessive study and reading that you actually make it to Greece. Was that a deliberate choice to make sure you were, you know, you were ready when you got there, or did it just take that long to save up for a ticket? <laughs> it was a combination of things. I gave myself that long to learn some Greek. Also, the New Yorker where I worked had a very enlightened vacation policy, but still I had to borrow a week. I had to save one week from the year before and borrow a week from the next year to get as much time as I wanted in Greece. I, had, I took five weeks the first time I went, which is a pretty generous vacation. And you turned up at that point with a bit of modern Greek, no ancient Greek, if I got that the right way That's around. That's right. I just studied modern Greek at that point. Um, I'd never studied a dead language and was discouraged twice in my life from studying Latin, first by my father when I was about 10 years old and the nuns at my um, grammar school offered a course on Saturdays for Lat in Latin for students and my father would not permit me to study Latin for whatever reason, he just didn't want to have a nerd for a daughter, I think is basically <laughs> and, what it comes down to. And how does he feel about having a nerd for to what I mean, it turned out that uh, that's what you were you know, going to be. You know, he was surprised that I could make a living as a nerd. Yeah. That, that pleased him. He was impressed, finally. His ambitions were for, for me were that I might be a, an accountant or a hairdresser. Mm. Um, he was practical. There were things that would always be a need for. Also, an undertaker might have fallen into that category, but he didn't go that far. But anyway, then I was discouraged again in college when I thought, hey, I could now, I'll study Latin. Dad isn't around, he's not here to stop me, but my linguistics professor actually discouraged me by saying, study a language that you can use to travel, and Latin I could only go to the Vatican. So <laughs> they're all trying to wean me away from the church. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, well, as your answers here are suggesting, the, the book is always this, this great kind of weaving of um, yeah, personal experience and, and, and memoir with, with the actual research. But <clears throat> with Between You and Me, I got the feeling that you might have been able to just about sit down and write that book without, apart from checking the, the date of the Webster dictionaries, you 
it was all there. You'd, you'd lived the research and you knew your commas. <clears throat> I was what I was curious to know, this is about words again and about your life, but did you do some fresh research as well? And, you know, how much? What, what did you do? What did you go and find out that you didn't already know in order to write this book? Well, you're, you're very right that the first book I wrote while I was still working at The New Yorker and it fed the book, the work fed the book. There were always commas to take in, to <laughs> put in and take out, and examples of language that I could use for that book. When it came to write the book about Greek, it was a lot harder because I didn't have as, how could I have as much familiarity with Greek as I had with the English I'd been speaking all my life and working in for 30 years. What I did have was two big boxes of notes from what I think of as my Greek period. I started studying in the early 80s and spent about a decade with Greek before I went off into, I'm a serial language learner, I went off into Italian. Anyway, I had to go back and I opened these boxes. One was labeled modern Greek, one was labeled um, drama, Greek right. drama. And every note I'd ever taken was in there. Also, a lot of things that I wrote at the time, hoping to be a travel writer on the subject of Greece. And I had never managed to publish any of those things. But there they were to be cannibalized for mm -hmm. this book. They changed a lot. And the book was um, things that were hard to write in particular. Um, were the chapter about the alphabet mm -hmm. and the chapter about uh, that I had to, in which I reconstructed the the piece called the Sacred Way, mm -hmm. which was about mm -hmm. walking from Athens to Eleftsina and thinking about the myth of Demeter and Persephone. The one about the alphabet was just hard because I love the alphabet and I couldn't stop going into detail mm -hmm. about individual mm -hmm. letters of the alphabet. I thought, well, surely this fascinates everybody. Um, and I started even at the beginning. You know, alpha is for Athena. Yeah. Beta is for barbarian. That would have been a lot of chapters. Though, it eh? was, you know, I got, myself, I got as far as lambda, and I thought, this is not working. <laughs> I think this is one of the audiences where you may be able to get away with talking about Greek letters more than in, an, in the average bar. So um, I'd like you to, oh, go on, recite the Greek alphabet. Go on, show us. I bet everybody can do that, right? Just do it really fast, you know. I can't do it fast. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, kappa, lambda, mi, ni, xi, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, tau, ypsilon, phi, psi, chi, omega. I might have left something out. Okay, so... Silly. That was half in modern Greek and half in ancient Greek. I apologize, yeah, I, I always new, mix those new, up. New, but anyway. Um, possibly the silliest question of the day, what's your favorite Greek letter? Ah, uh, my uh, very favorite, uh, it's very hard to choose, but I would have to say psi, the one that looks like a pitchfork, which is the first letter in the word psyche, psyche in, in Greek and gives us all those words, psychology, psychosomatic, uh, psychopharmogenesis, I think I just made that one up. Um, 
But you know, Psyche was the bride of Eros, who was the son of Aphrodite, and and it means spirit, soul. And it's a beautiful word, just spelled psi epsilon chi eta, I think psyche. So I also see the one that looks like three bars, horizontal bars, is confused in English with X because it has the sound xi. Um, it's a, the <coughs> letter in Greek at the beginning of the word wood, xylos. And a xylophone is spelt with an X. That's the voice of the wood. Isn't that beautiful? Um, but we don't, the only other thing that is about, about xi, one way into Greek is to recognize things from the English alphabet. The word taxi is above all the, the taxis in Athens, and it's spelled a lot like our taxi, but it's T-A-X-I, not an X, but the three bars, I. So you can read that letter and learn the letter Xi. Excellent. Um, one of my favorite things when traveling has been to read a book that's been written or set exactly where you are at the time. You know, it's, it's hardly an original idea. But you know, reading about tragic Himalayan accidents while you're in Nepal or <laughs> reading the, the Quiet American in Saigon at the, at, the, at the hotel where the bomb went off, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so if I was going to Greece next week, what, what books should I pack? Oh, well, I would start, I think, with um, Patrick Lee Fermer. I would take Mani and Rumeli, and I would take, I think I'd take something by not Lawrence Durrell, but Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, a very entertaining <laughs> book about Corfu, and, and Henry Miller's The Colossus of Marusi. Right. Um, which is, um, you know, Henry Miller got to travel in Greece with Lawrence Durrell and George Sephiris. They took him around to all these beautiful places, and he wrote rapturously about it. And he gave his journal, which ter was turned into the Colossus of Marusi, he gave that journal to George Sephiris when he left. Right. It was amazing. And I won't go into it, but there's a whole chapter where you, um, where Lee Patrick Firma becomes sort of a whole hinge for, for a chapter as you go, yes. and, go and seek out where he would, seek out his beach. Um, so a little bit more the, about the alphabet. We've got the favorite. I love the fact that you petitioned the New Yorker. So you, you get back and, and you realize you want to learn ancient Greek as well as modern Greek for some reason. Um, I love the fact that you petitioned the New Yorker to pay for your ancient Greek lessons as well as the modern Greek lessons. And uh, really, this is, just, this is where I just press a button and ask for an anecdote. But basically, how did you swing that? <laughs> and you're allowed to use the word autochthonous because I want to hear you say that word. Oh, all right. Well, people think that this is some kind of a scam that I got the New Yorker <laughs> to pay for Greek. But the New Yorker had always had a very liberal policy about paying for employees to study anything that uh, helped them with their jobs. So you know, they, they didn't bat an eyelash when I gave them the bill for modern Greek. That was just one night a week at NYU. So I came back from Greece. I, I was inspired by the sight of the Aegean. I wanted to read everything that had been written and read by the people who were on that sea before me. I have not succeeded totally in that ambition, but I, I enrolled for classical Greek at Columbia University, a regular undergraduate course. And um, you know, I didn't have to take any tests to get into Columbia as a postgraduate special student. I just had to give them a check. 
And when I submitted the bill for classical Greek to the executive editor at the New Yorker, he was new, and he, he wrote, he didn't know who he was <laughs> he dealing with. He wrote, he wrote back a note that said he didn't see the relevance of ancient Greek to my job on the copy desk. And I was appalled. Um, and so I started keeping a dossier of words that came across the copy desk that had Greek roots, Greek etymology. <laughs> and I had just learned in, in the Greek class the word ophthalmos, the ancient Greek for I. And uh, lo and behold, a piece had ophthalmologist in it, spelled O-P-T-H-A-L-M-O-L-O. G-I-S-T? Anyway, it's off, it's, uh, it's O-P-H-T-H, et cetera. So that was one word I could fix. And I have another, to interrupt to ask, yes, do yes. you say it off, ophthalmology or ophthalmology then? Does the H go silent or does it become a F? Probably you don't pronounce the F, probably oh. it's ophthalmology. Right. Sorry, yeah. carry on, carry on. And there's even a school of thought that the F was not pronounced as an F in ancient Greece, but as an aspirated P. Um, how they know these things, I don't know. But uh, anyway, if you see a word with PH in it in English, that's a transliteration of a Greek word usually. Another one, I, this is when John McPhee was writing his pieces on geology, and he used the word autochthonous. And that's from auto, which is self, and chthonos. In Greek, it would be chi theta and transliterated as C-H-T-H-O-N-O-U-S. Autochthonous <laughs> in English means something like self-generating from the earth. And that was another one that I could use in my dossier. Um, a simpler one was pi. You know, everybody knew the letter pi. And that was one that we could, that occurred in the New Yorker, probably in a piece on astronomy. It is true you don't need to study ancient Greek to know how to spell pi because it's quite an easy word to spell. But anyway. <laughs> you have to know what it looks like. <laughs> um, how many pages was this dossier? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. I know I had come up with 10 detailed examples. And I also asked the legendary copy editor at The New Yorker, Eleanor Gould, total genius, if she would write a letter in my support um, that, you know, that ancient Greek did indeed pertain to English and copy editing. And she did that. She wrote that uh, she had not studied Greek in years and so could not be completely trusted and to let <laughs> some, you know, in case we, she didn't want us to look ignorant. The word she used was to prevent ignorant mistakes. And I think that may have been what yeah. swung them. But it, was, it may have been a little um, bit of overkill my dossier out, I showed it to an editor who was a friend, and he said, you're using a cannon to shoot a flea. <laughs> <laughs> so. And do you recall what the sum of money that you were unlocking with this well, was? Well, it was over $1,000. Oh, right. And for me at the time, that yeah. was uh, a lot more money than it was to the New Yorker at the time. Right, so uh, this next question is my gratuitous attempt to sort of link current events with your book. Um, you write frequently about Homer including the fact that he was really good at choosing epithets when an adjective gets glued to a noun in a particularly memorable way. Um, but then, and you, you give a bunch of examples and talk about it at very interesting length, but when you gave the example of Homer speaking of crooked-minded Kronos, I couldn't help thinking of Crooked Hillary. Yes. And all the other nicknames that your president uh, gives to people. Sloppy. 
<laughs> Sloppy Carl Bernstein, goofy Elizabeth Warren, and so forth. So, controversial question. Could it be argued that Donald Trump is the homer of our time? <laughs> Donald Trump is the polyphemus <laughs> of our time. Okay, you're gonna have to unpack that for people like me who don't know who polyphemus is. Um, well, polyphemus is the cyclops, and he was only oh. one of the cyclopses. <laughs> the Cyclopes, but there's a wonderful line in Homer that describes the ethos of this, the Cyclopes. These are titans that were not, they were kind of prototypes for human beings, and they were missing <laughs> human sympathy, is, is what they were missing. Wow. And I did, of course, when I was writing about crooked-minded Kronos, mm. I ha originally had um, a reference to uh, Mr. Trump which, by the way, in Greek is spelled T-R-A-M-P. <laughs> they don't have a schwa, so they substitute the A. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't work. It would be trimp with an epsilon or tump. <laughs> so they use the A, and it's, it looks like right. tramp, which I love. Um, but what I decided about Crooked Hillary and all of the others um, was I, I didn't want to put Trump in the book. Mm, I mean, he's not going to be president forever. I'm My sorry book for is going to outlast him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you laid enough breadcrumbs that, that I was powerfully thinking about Trump while reading it. So you, you, you've, you encoded him or something. <laughs> um, but that business about the epithet is, um, I just didn't know that stuff, but there are all those quite familiar the wine, wine dark sea or wine coloured sea, and um, and then I just went looking for other ones in the book, ox-eyed women and lion-hearted Achilles and so forth. Um, so I don't know. I just want you to say a little bit about what's going on with Homer and epithets because it's just super interesting. Um, but also in landing on what epithet would you choose, or in fact, have you chosen for yourself, uh -oh. or which one do you like best that you've been assigned? <laughs> I would go with stout-hearted. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the epithets are um, something that I was, I was eager to write about from the beginning. I love the epithet for Athena, gray-eyed Athena, and wine dark sea. I, everybody is a little confused. Not everybody, but people think I thought of wine as red wine and wanted the sea to, in the Aegean to be purple, and. Staring at that sea on my first trip, I, I, it came to me that wine dark refers not to the color of the sea, but to the quality of the sea, that it has these mysterious depths in it, the way a cup of wine has, and a little danger, maybe. And it turns out that Homer refers to the sea with that epithet wine dark when the Achaeans or Odysseus are setting out into something dangerous, right. so it has that. Gray-eyed turns out more often now to be translated as um, brilliant, shining-eyed, glimmering-eyed, glinting-eyed, and is this also probably refers to a quality and not a color. A friend of mine referred to it as the color of wet stones, but I know it's thought if it is a color to be blue, I always, my mother had gray eyes, and I have my mother's eyes, so I did have um, some vanity hmm. about thinking, well, I have the same color eyes as Athena, so I wanted to suppress that whole <laughs> other translation that wasn't about color. 
But we have got the word for that in Greek is glaukopis and glaukos, glaukos. We have the word glaukos. It doesn't sound particularly beautiful in English, but the sea is described as glaukos, a gray-green shimmer. And, and that glaukos, that word has really evolved over time to include all kinds of colors from silver and yellow to blue and green and gray. So it's, um, I think it may describe, you know, the, some people have changeable color eyes. It's something like that. It's, mm -hmm. um, Depending on your circumstances, what you're wearing, your eyes look a different color. That could easily be Athena, who would blend in and you know, take on the form of a mortal to speak with mortals. Right, so stout-hearted or, or glaucoside. I'm <laughs> stout-hearted just because, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not easily phased. Excellent. Uh, in which case, you won't be afraid to do a brief reading, which I'll just set up a little bit. Um, as I've said, travelogue, and personal memoir I worked in with the broader Greek themes of legend and myth and, and history and, and geography and all the rest of it. And I especially liked the way you did this in the chapter about your search for the spirit of Aphrodite in, in Cyprus. So could you reel a bit? Well, okay, I'm reading this by request. It wouldn't have been what I chose. <laughs> and just to set you up, I went to Cyprus on my first trip to, to Greece. Cyprus is not technically part of Greece, but it's culturally very Greek, and it is the birthplace of Aphrodite, um, I, who is the goddess of beauty and love and sex and desire. And these were things that I always had a little bit of a conflict about, beauty, sex, desire. And uh, for instance, when I was a little girl, I tried to remove a freckle with a can of Ajax. <laughs> and I thought that was a terrible blemish, and I <laughs> gave myself a new blemish. Um, so traveling there in Cyprus, I wanted to go to these baths of Aphrodite. Uh, I ended up driving alone to a beach that uh, had been it known as a, the legend was that if you swam off this beach to these rocks that were a ways out and swam around them, you would be beautiful forever. Uh, when I thought about it later, I realized that who told me this legend was the guy who rented me the car. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, I had been unusually, I, I found myself in the unusual position while traveling that first time in Greece of being highly desirable. I was a woman traveling alone and um, all the waiters would hit on me. Some nice men helped me fix the headlights on my car in Cyprus, and then they wanted to get in the car with me and come with me to the Baths of Aphrodite, which they claimed they had never heard of. So <laughs> I had to tell them, you know, I, I want to be alone. And I, I drove there near a town called Polis, which means simply city. I bought a couple of beers. I walked down the beach, a very sharp, stony beach, and I got to this beach and swam out to the rocks, very luxurious swim in which I invented what I call the panorama stroke, where you go first a breaststroke, so you see ahead of you, then one side, side stroke left to see the land, then on my back to see the sky, and then on the other side to see the horizon, and then ahead again. I even drank the water. I put my head down and sipped mm. at it, perfectly good. So I was out on the rocks. As long as no one was looking, I was tempted to take off my bathing suit. 
I had skinny dipped only once before in a pond in New Jersey, and it felt so daring. My heart had pounded as I got in deep enough to lose foot contact and begin to tread water. I had expected any second to hear a bullhorn and have the police roar into the water in an amphibious squad car and fish me out and book me for indecent exposure. To be naked in the elements. It can only be bad if someone disapproves, as when Yahweh spotted Adam and Eve after the apple in the Garden of Eden. But I was strongly tempted. If a swim around the rocks of Aphrodite was supposed to make me beautiful, the water had to touch all of me. I wouldn't want to make the mistake of silver-footed Thetis, who held her son Achilles by the heel as she dipped him in the river Styx, leaving that one part of him invulnerable, one part of him vulnerable. Reader, I stripped there on the rock and lowered myself back into the sea. Every nerve fiber was alive as I hovered in the water. There was no layer of lycra between the sea and me. I clamped the suit between my teeth by its straps and paddled around the rocks like a retriever. <laughs> I felt as if I had shed a woolen overcoat. The current pushed me gently back to shore, and I washed up onto mounds of bleached seaweed as cushiony as confetti. I felt reborn. I ate my lunch on the beach, a cheese sandwich left over from breakfast, dried figs, a few cookies, prolonged by the two big bottles of beer I had bought, from which I poured generous libations to Aphrodite. I wished now that there were a man with me, someone to enjoy this with, but I had no regrets. Like the island of Cyprus itself, I wanted self-determination. My two wishes might conflict, it seemed impossible to have both love and independence at the same time, but it was liberating to admit I wanted them. And if I had been traveling with someone else, I would never have ended up in this place. I walked back to the car, saturated with beauty. Many tiny burrs stuck to my blanket. There was a dirt road winding along the hillside so I could avoid hobbling over those sharp stones. For once, I let myself do something the easy way. I don't know if anyone would say I was changed, but everything I saw was transformed. It was as if I were drugged. Colors of rocks, flowers, pebbles, grass, thistles, sea, cypresses and cedars, all were heightened in beauty and somehow graspable, more palpably there. After being in the sea, I was returning to my own element, to land, and I saw it all anew. I was a long way from home where I had stood in front of the bathroom mirror with the Ajax and muttered, hideouser and hideouser. <laughs> when I got back to the car, I did something I hadn't done in years, turned the rear view mirror toward me and rearranged my hair. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, fantastic. Um, Seeing you've been confessional, I know this isn't about me, but I need to confess here that I went to Cyprus once for two hours um, on a ferry ride from Piraeus to Haifa, and I skinny dipped too. But uh, it, didn't, it didn't end anywhere near as well as it did for you. Uh, <laughs> a, a very large, red-faced, angry Cypriot man came out and shouted at me, and my fellow swore and told us to put our clothes back on. So really? anyway, that he really did. Um, you mentioned libation. I think you need to explain what a libation is. Well, one of the things I loved when I read Homer in 
translation when I was first studying modern Greek was um, the way they would offer sacrifice to the gods. They would have a, a feast. They would sacrifice, you know, hecatombs of oxen, and the gods loved the smell of the roast meats. Gods don't have to eat, so all they had to do was sniff it, and they were happy. And then the mortals got to eat the ox. And the same with anything they drank. Before they drank wine, they would pour some onto the earth or into the sea to propitiate the gods, to ask the gods' blessing, to thank the gods as a show of gratitude. And then they would drink the rest of the wine themselves. So I was very taken by that um, gesture of offering a bit to the gods. So I, I do that. I, even rather expensive wine. <laughs> I don't pour out big, big droughts of it, but I will take a little on my fingertip and splash it, preferably not onto anyone's clothes or onto anything that would stain. But I, I try very hard to do that. I mean, I like to do it. And sometimes in a restaurant, if I do that, some waiter will say, was there a mosquito in your drink? You know? <laughs> um. So, several times in the book you link some Greek archetype, whether it's myths or you know, Aphrodite or Athena, um, some myth legend or even bits of actual Greek history, to specific themes in your own life. And obviously you're not the first person to do this, otherwise we wouldn't talk about Oedipal complexes and, and the psyche and, and erotic desire and eros and so forth. But what is it about Greek stories in particular that makes them so resonant that two and a half, two and a bit millennia later, they, they resonate for people who are living in a, in a profoundly different modern world. Well, it always amazes me that you know, a circumstance can be unique, can feel unique to you, and yet there is some resonance with Greek myth in it. The tragedies and the whole, all the stories of the god and the epics were all things that acted as therapy to ancient Greeks, uh, certainly the tragedies would make them feel better about their own lives. You know, I may have um, hurt someone's feelings, but I didn't kill my father and marry my mother. You know, um, <laughs> and no matter how bad your marriage is, probably Oedipus feels, makes you feel better. In my case, one of the ones that really struck was Antigone. Uh, Antigone is, um, you know, I've heard her described as just a pain in the ass because she has something and she won't let go. She, as you probably know, buried her brother who was killed in the war against Thebes against the wishes of her uncle Creon who had taken over from, from Oedipus as king of Thebes and was condemned to death for that act. And all she did was do the natural thing, would bury her brother whom she loved, and she couldn't have done she couldn't have done it differently. So this is what to me is is moving about a tragedy like that is when you can do something in in utter innocence, and be blamed for it, and you know you can't you you can't feel any guilt, you can't feel any regret for something like that. You did it in in good, with good intentions and um, with love. So what happened to me in this case, um, as I, I had lost a brother when I was uh, an infant, and it was our family tragedy, and I grew up knowing about this family tragedy. And my parents, 
had another child after this. The, the one son died, and that was my younger brother. And I had a special bond with this younger brother. And when he, at about the age of, I think he was 39, I realized he was transgender and underwent um, a transition to, from being male to female, I felt, uh, well, I felt a little betrayed because I felt that he was rejecting our common past. But I also felt that this brother was dying. Um, and I found out that a lot of people who, are, who have siblings who transition from one gender to another experience that as a death. So mm -hmm. I felt good that it, I wasn't the only one who had ever felt this. But, and I know I was e exaggerating. I know, looking back, that I exaggerated this response. It was not even something that was happening to me or my body. It was something that was happening to my brother. But somehow, reading Antigone in Greek, it was the first tragedy I read in ancient Greek. It just made me realize that what I was, you know, my only crime was that I loved my brother the way Antigone's crime was that she loved her brother. And, and what happened to her was so much worse than what happened to me. Also that her brother was like, you know, also her nephew. This is really complicated because their father had been married to their mother. So it was um, all um, amplified and magnified in that tragic figure. And it really did help me. It was better therapy than the shrink, who I saw for only 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I was interested in the shrink that, that um, when you went to the shrink and said, what's wrong with me? Uh, the shrink said, you've got, well, sort of a pretty Greek diagnosis of, of dysthymia. Yes, so the Greek yes. gets everywhere, you know, even, even when you um, are not right in the head. You're, it's a Greek word that they come back with for you, which was, I thought that was fascinating. Yes, it, it is. I think interesting that I, dysthymia was the... Um, the high, what do they call it? The, not the prognosis, the... Diagnosis. Diagnosis. You had to have one to, to collect on your insurance from the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> good old New <laughs> They were Yorker. very, very good to me. And I couldn't find it in the dictionary, but I took it apart. Dys, of course, is bad. Dysphoria. Um, and themis, that's, a home, that's from the Homeric word for the life force in the chest. It's what... Um, a, a warrior in, the, in Troy, if, if he, uh, Achilles was, his themis was wounded. He was hurt in his feelings. And so what dysthemia turned out to mean downhearted. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if there was a cure for that or not. <laughs> That's quite a nice diagnosis. Um, so this now sister of yours, um, I bl believe just from watching some other interview you'd, you've done that before your first book came out, you had a reasonable stack of unpublished writing efforts, oh, yes. <laughs> including a memoir about your trans sister. Um, so, yeah, what, what happened to that? I, I'm also keen to know how that story turned out, because I'm a bit oh. concerned that you saw it as a death. I hope there was sort of a, a, a rebirth at the other side. But um, also, that book, Might It Ever See the Light of Day, or some version of it. Well, what happened with that book was, um, first of all, Dee, my brother, now is my sister, and her, her name is Dee, and she's a performer under the name Baby Dee, and she is great. Google Baby Dee and look at her on YouTube, and you'll fall in love. But what Dee did that, that, made, that changed everything was Dee 
who had been in a freak show in Europe, came home to take care of our parents in their last illnesses, something it never occurred to me to do. And so our older brother and I were, are eternally grateful to Dee for that. And Dee said all she wanted was an, equest an equestrian statue. You know, that's <laughs> all she wanted Fine. in return. But what happened with the book that I wrote, you know, I was only, I, I kept a lot of notes while um, Dee and I were going through this, and we were estranged for a while. And I, I thought it might help other people who were in this situation if I wrote this book. But I didn't have any success getting it published. And I, you know, I mean, how many years was I going to invest in it? But it was because I had just been rejected by an agent that I had an agent in place when I had the idea to write about punctuation and pencils between you and me. So that was helpful. And then I was able to use some of the material about D in the chapter on gender, on um, whether you use he or she or they. And I, I felt, well, why not leap around a little? I had had trouble. I called the chapter in the memoir, the unpublished memoir was called Pronoun Wars, because not only did I have to learn to call my Sister D, but I had to learn to use the feminine pronoun, which is not easy. But it made it easier for me to adapt when it began to be politically incorrect to use just he. When you have an unnamed subject, um, the masculine begins to seem like it seem as if it leaves out half of the human race, or they, which seemed to me still to be hard because it the numbers didn't work. But now people who want to be called they. I am perfectly happy to call they if I can remember, and, and it gets easier all the time. But this chapter on pronoun wars, my editor at, um, for the first book, Between You and Me, encouraged me to use that material in that chapter. At first, I had a, it in a single parenthesis mm -hmm. that um, perhaps it's easier for me to move pronouns, move between pronouns, because I had a transgender sibling, period, close parentheses. And my editor said, um, can you possibly expand on this? It might be interesting. It might help people. So I used the material that had been in the memoir for the first book. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, I used my own experience of um, seeing a shrink for 15 years. Um, in the chapter on Aphrodite, about coming to terms with um, sex and love and desire, a whole novel I had written about that. It's five paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> it's highly condensed. Both of these books are very condensed. I, I guess that's the copy editor, you, and you, you, you know how to cut and cut. That's a big cut. A novel down to five paragraphs. Cuts. I, I don't think. The other thing, I had to speak with Dee about using that material about her in the first book because she, I knew she was sensitive about it. She was really happy for me that I'd finally gotten a book contract after years of trying to get some get published, and she didn't want to see herself in it. So Dee now lives in the Netherlands, and we had an email conversation overnight. Um, it was her morning, it was my night, in which we thrashed it out. I learned exactly what hurt her feelings, and what she could live with. And so I was able to write a chapter that um, would not wound Dee. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the, the books get stuck in your head. I was thinking about you last night as I was waiting for an Uber. And um, 
the pronoun, there was, you know, a, a dude in a, a Prius was coming to pick me up. And um, <laughs> it said, uh, you know, Pat, Patrick is one minute away, they will be in a red. And I thought, <laughs> oh. I don't know how Mary Norris would oh, feel about good, that because good. it's a plural pronoun. But anyway, anyway, um, I was interested, as you've just said, you, you got published reasonably late in the piece after um, spending three decades just about invisibly making other writers look better. How wonderful or, or awful was it to be reading your own you know, late proofs, the, those, those proofs, thinking these are my words, I don't have to, I'm not making somebody else look better now? Well, um, first of all, copy editing was a good job for me. I'm somebody who had a facility for words, and to make a living as a writer, I found very difficult. Unless I could have lived on $80 a year, then I could have done it, but <laughs> I couldn't make enough money. So, and I'm better at words than I was at waiting on tables or anything else. So, and it, I'd improved my writing. Reading all these great writers was good. Um, having an editor was something I was starved for by the time I um, had written this book. And my editor, Matt Wyland at Norton, was, is a genius of an editor. And he's the one who, in both of these books, was responsible for getting a blend between um, the subject, in one case grammar, in the other Greek, and my life, and in the case of, the, of Between You and Me, a New Yorker lore. So he's the one who has created this blend, who encouraged me to get the elements right. Let me guess, his pressure was probably to, say, reveal more, more of you, more memoir, bleed on the page, well, please. I would have hoped so, but in fact, whenever I gave more of me, <laughs> he would cut that. Oh, that's terrible. Well, I like this, but I particularly like that chapter where this, that, that Aphrodite one just uh, merges them. Well, you're probably talking about copy <clears throat> editing, and it is hard to be copy edited it, I think it, it takes a really big writer, a good writer, to be copy edited without being a bit defensive mm, mm, about mm. everything that you've written being perfect just the way it is. I have been in the stupid position of defending something that was totally wrong. Yeah. And I try not to let that happen anymore. Um, but copy editing, being copy edited was was a bit hard. I think because of my reputation, the copy editor was sometimes afraid. Mm -hmm. And I know as a copy editor who had to work on um, manuscripts by people who were really careful, uh, John Updike, say, mm -hmm. there was rarely a mistake in John Updike, you could doze off. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's not true. <laughs> what I mean is your copy editor could go off and your reader could kick in, and you'd just read it for pleasure. Hmm. And you, could, you would run the risk then of missing a mistake if there was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna do audience questions in a couple of minutes, so I've just got two extremely tiny technical questions for you. Um, New York obviously famously has a rather eccentric house style with little dots over the O and cooperate, and a hyphen and teenager and other madnesses. Um, so when it came to writing your own books, what style guide did you follow? Ah, well that was a that question was put to me by my American publisher, Norton. Do you want us to copy edit this first book between you and me using New Yorker style or Norton style? And my first response was, well, I'm used to New Yorker style. Let's use the New Yorker style. But then I, I asked around and I realized that I did not want to be the kind of writer whom I had encountered 
at The New Yorker who was resistant to such things as spelling focused with two S's. You know, they were always <laughs> not like that for some reason. To me, without, with just one S, it looks like focused. I can't help it. But I didn't want to be that kind of resistant writer, so I went with Norton's style. And because I know the way things work a little, I could go ahead and take the changes from the copy editor, and then if they really didn't look right to me, I could switch them back. Right. Which I did in a few cases. Marvelous should really have two L's. I believe. Yes. Well, we do things, we do things a little differently in New Zealand anyway, so <laughs> you, you get no argument. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.